If you were with us last week in church, you know that we began a series um, in the book of Daniel last week, and we were looking at this uh, shortish book in the Old Testament, written at a time when the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, the Jewish people, had been taken out of their land forcibly and taken into exile. And they were a long way away then from where they lived. They were a long way away from home. And one of the big questions for people who live away from home in exile as believers is this. How do you act when you can't act the way you used to act? How do you worship when you can't worship the same way you used to worship? And how do you live in a culture that has different rules? And last week, if you remember, we did that idea of where do you draw the line? Do you remember? It was simple. Where do you draw the line? Where do you say, actually, we'll do this, but we'll not do that? And one of the ways that Daniel, the book of Daniel works, is to try and help people who feel like they don't quite belong to the culture around them, know what it means to be a believer in God and a follower of his way, and for us as Christians, to be a follower of Jesus. How do you live when everybody else is different? Well, we're going to read a story from Daniel, chapter 3. And uh, it's kind of a, quite a long chapter. But in the middle of it, there's, I know that for some people they don't see it like this, but there's elements of ridiculousness here. All right? I think I may have made a word up. There's elements of just farce. And I think sometimes you're supposed to see it and go, uh, yeah, I, I see what they're doing there. It's not laugh out loud. It's not slapstick. But it is farce. And uh, I wonder if you'll hear it when we read it together. So if you've got a Bible or you can be in sight of one, it's the book of Daniel, um, which is towards the end of the Old Testament. And it's chapter 3. I'm actually going to pick it up, by the way, the end of chapter 2, verse 48. What has happened is they'd made their line, they'd said, we're not going to do that. And then uh, the king had had a bad dream that he couldn't make sense of, and Daniel was able to interpret the dream. And because the king was so grateful, in verse 48, the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chief ministers over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, or, uh, as it is in my footnote, 27 meters high and 2.5 meters wide, which is about 90 foot tall, so it's big set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. 
Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every, langu- of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuch- King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever doesn't fall down and worship him will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all the kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you don't worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If the God we serve is able to deliver us, then he will deliver us from the blazing furnace and from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of the gold you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. Now, I love this. It's like before we were just going to put you in the furnace. But now, seven times, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and all the other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, the furnace so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, majesty. He replied, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, and they defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own God. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces, their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. It's a long story, but it's a great story. So where were they? 
Well, they were here. This is the Babylonian Empire. And uh, you can see, that's where Babylon was. And that's where they've come from, Israel and Jerusalem. That's what home was. But what happened was the, Babylon, the Babylonians, they just extended their empire to that extent, all over Egypt. And, then, and they just sort of annexed Israel. So what they wanted to do was to make sure that you didn't leave little resistance groups. So you took people from places like Israel, and then you made them march, forcibly march, to Babylon, and then you made them Babylonian. And that's where they were living. And it's interesting, the king had made Daniel ruler over the entire province and placed him in charge of all its wise men. And at his request, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three friends, became administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel stayed at the royal court. They were fully involved. Fully involved. It was the biggest empire of the day. It's not going to last forever, but nobody could imagine that. But what happened was these young Israelite men were fully involved in this new culture because they found favor, really. They found favor. But every now and again, what's going to happen is there's going to be a clash. And the clash, as it always is, is going to be a clash of worship. It's all about worship, this chapter. Everything's always about worship. It still is. You see, we believe that you're created to worship. You're created to give of yourself to something. And it's not whether you worship, it's what you worship and how you worship. It's the same way. We're all being discipled. We're all being taught how to live. The only question is, who's teaching us? Is it the culture around us? Or are we actually learning what it means to live by understanding what Jesus would want of us? It's always about worship. And this whole chapter is this clash of worship. Who will you worship? So this chapter begins with this massive image of gold, 90 feet high and uh, about 9 feet wide. It's easy, isn't it, to think there's exaggeration going on. But if you go to the British Museum, amongst many other things, you'll be able to see this. Now, that's the head of a sculpture that came from the 1400 BC. So long before Daniel, way back, that was the head of it. It was absolutely huge, probably about 90 feet tall. In fact, uh, when we were there fighting our way amongst Japanese tourists. That's the arm. That's just the arm of it. Now, clearly, when the British wanted to bring it all back to England, which is where it obviously belonged, um, <laughs> they broke it, you know, it all broken up a bit. But that's just the arm. Now, can you see the size of the block next to it? So that's, a, I don't know, it's about 12 foot long, just the arm. 1400 BC. Why? If you were in Egypt, which is where this comes from, why would you commission people to build this? Well, it's a way of saying this is what the world's like. This is 
who's in charge around here. This is what makes sense of life. This is what matters. And what's more, you see this and you recognize who you are. This is regal. It's luxurious. It's powerful. And anybody in Thebes, that part of Egypt, would have been under no illusion that you're small, that you don't count, that you exist for them, not the other way around. It's powerful, a powerful image. So when Nebuchadnezzar sets up a gold image, it's interesting, he doesn't say what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. It's like there's going to be a moment where you have to worship before it. And that's where, when you hear the harp, the lyre, the zither, and it goes on. And now, that's not bad editing, by the way, folks. It's not like that chapter just needed tidying up a bit. That's someone poking fun at it. Because what do you do with these sort of images? Now, for these Jewish people, they'd come from Israel and they're living in Babylon. But one of the first things, the defining thing in their lives was this. And it's from the Ten Commandments in Exodus. Listen, this is how the Ten Commandments begin. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And it's interesting, not only that this idea of don't worship anything else, but it's interesting how the Ten Commandments are set up there. You've lived under this. You've seen what it's like living under other gods. I'm telling you, don't allow yourself to worship other gods. It's interesting that you sort of think, well, that's not a big issue for us. We don't worship other gods. But what are... What's the big stories that we live in that say, this is what life's about? Because they become gods. The way we start to look at what makes sense of our lives. In about uh, 1500, a man called Martin Luther said this, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that's your God. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that's your God. That's the thing that you think will save you. That's the thing that will bring deliverance for you. That's the thing that will make sense of your life. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that's your God. For some of us, it's safety and security. For some of us, it's relationships. Can't be on our own. Desperately need to be with someone else. And so some people just tip it sort of tipple into a series of relationships because I can't be on my own. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that's your God. I wonder what you'd say was yours. In Babylon, there's three men who are just getting on with their business, and they watch the rest of the culture. Every time the harp, the zither, the lyre, the pipes play, everybody has to bow down, because everybody effectively says, it's not that all these people who worship this image believe in it, 
It's just, that's the way we do it around here. And you've got three young men who go, we're doing our business, we'll just get on with it. They don't start slagging off everybody else who bows down. They just say, we're not going to do it. We just do our own business. And it's when the astrologers come and they put a word in Nebuchadnezzar's ear and they say, have you noticed there are people who aren't doing the same as the rest of us are doing? Have you noticed there are people who are living differently? Nebuchadnezzar has to act. It's intriguing, isn't it? Because all around you, there are multiple ways of living. There are multiple choices that you can take about what you do with your life. And your family, and your friends, and your workmates, and the people you hang around with, they choose their own way. And you don't, it's not for you to be laying down and saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But, it's, but what about you? How will you live? What choices do you make? Well, of course, Nebuchadnezzar has indicated that if people in his kingdom don't worship in the way that everybody else will worship, there will be a penalty to pay. And the penalty was the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar meets these young men and he says, look, you must realize that if you don't worship, if you're not the same as everybody else, there will be consequences to pay. If you're different, you won't get away with it. And Nebuchadnezzar goes a bit further and he says, and who's going to help you? What God can stop you? What God can stop you, can save you from the furnace? Nebuchadnezzar has set himself up. He's set himself up as the one who's in charge. And it's like, you're not allowed to stand against it. I was chatting to Morag a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we were preparing for the uh, service we did last week. And um, she told me a story about um, uh, their household and their, their children, which I've got their permission to tell. Now, the first thing I want to say before I go any further in this is that I've been to uh, uh, Ian and Morag's house around Christmas time, and it's full of all the same sort of paraphernalia you expect of Christmas cards and Christmas trees and everything else. So they're not weird. Well, not in that sense anyway, but they're not weird. No, I'm just trying to stick up for them. They're not weird. But when Cameron was three and at, uh, in reception, Morag was pulled in by, the, by her, Cameron's teacher and said, I, I need to see you at the end of school, you know. Now, those of you that have had children know that sinking feeling <laughs> when that happens. It's rarely to say, we just love your child. It's normally, mm, there's a problem. So Morag went in to see the, the teacher, and the teacher said this. She said, um, we've been talking about Christmas and Father Christmas, and Cameron doesn't seem to believe in Father Christmas. And Morag said, well, no. She said, you know, we've not made a big deal out of it, um, but we've just sort of said, look, this is a way we tell a story about Christmas, um, but some, and you know, but, but we... We've not, and Morag said, because actually when we tell the things that we think are the truth, then we want them to know we can trust those and then not find out later that things we were telling were true weren't true. And the teacher said, oh, and by the way, um, I also know that uh, Morag and Ian had said, don't go around telling everybody else this song, because they might not understand. So you've got to get the picture. 
of two adults having a conversation. And the teacher said, yes, but, but we're celebrating Christmas. And Morag said, well, that's good, because we do as well. Yeah, but he doesn't seem to believe in Father Christmas. And then Morag said it to me. She said, so I said to her, but he's not true, is he? <laughs> and the teacher said, well, no. <laughs> and so Morag said, so why are we having the conversation? <laughs> now, it's a small thing. And in a Morag are not saying to everybody, and I'm not saying to everybody, you mustn't, you know, because, as I said, they're not weird. Their home at Christmas is like all the rest of our homes at Christmas. A bit noisier, but the rest, it's the same. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that our culture says, at certain points, this is what we all do, even if we know it's not true. It was an interesting thing, just to remind me that sometimes the culture wants to push you down a line. That you go, well, actually, we're not saying you shouldn't. We're not saying it's bad. We're not saying anything. We're just saying, we're just getting on with our business. And Nebuchadnezzar said, you can't just get on with your business. There will be a penalty to pay. Nebuchadnezzar has power, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are no fools. And they know that when the king puts you in a furnace that he has made seven times hotter, just in case, when he puts you into a seven times hotter furnace, you burn. And Nebuchadnezzar had put down the challenge to these three guys and said, what God's going to save you then? And this is their answer. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, and this is the big good bit, even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. In other words, the guys are really, really level-headed about this. They're not stupid. Furnaces burn. You throw us in, it's likely we will be burnt. However, we trust in a God who can deliver us. But we are also very, very aware that he might not. But our faith, they say, doesn't depend on God just doing good stuff to us. We are taking a stand for the things that we believe are true. God might deliver us, but he might not. But we know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. And everybody watching on would see these three men being marched to the furnace and being thankful that they weren't the soldiers that were being marching with them at the front because once they got to the furnace, it was so hot that they got burnt up as well. But the rest of them were watching on as these three men tumbled into the pit that was the furnace. And to everybody's eyes, it looked like they'd lost. To everybody's eyes, it looked like Nebuchadnezzar was the strongest. These three took the way of the cross. Now, these furnaces, it's rare that 
we have it like this. Although there are parts of the world today where people actually do face life or death decisions. It's just the blessing of God that we're in the West where that's not the deal. But it was only a few weeks ago, wasn't it, that we heard of people coming in, extreme religious fanatics coming in and demanding to know who are the Christians here and then we'll shoot them. So please, you know, we read this and, and the danger is we read it as a Sunday school story. But please hear that for some believers today, this furnace is very real. How do you face the furnace? You can't tell what God's going to do. You can't just pray against the furnace and it'll go. The furnace is not put out. You can't stop the challenge, but you can decide your reaction. You see, for these three guys, they knew they were in the furnace because they were in the right place. For those three guys, the furnace was the right place. And then Nebuchadnezzar has this moment, which is remarkable, and it is truly remarkable, where he looks and he goes, fellas, didn't we throw three in? (laughs) Why can I see four? And Nebuchadnezzar says, and the fourth looks like one of the sons of God. It's not the three men who are aware of the fourth. It's the person looking on who recognizes there's someone with you in the furnace that we had nothing to do with. There's someone else there. Now this is one of the reasons I think why this story became so so important for people wanting to work out what it meant to live in exile. Because when you're in the middle of a furnace, not knowing whether it's going to burn you up, you need to know, if I've done this because I've been following Jesus, is he with me? Or has he just abandoned me? Am I in this furnace on my own? Or actually, is he with me? And the interesting thing is that sometimes you just never know yourself. I met a lady who was a a PA, and uh, she worked as a PA to a really difficult boss. She was a Christian, worked for this really, really difficult, demanding, arrogant, unreasonable boss. And she she really did want to pray that God would help her make a difference in her job, and she used to pray that day in, day out. But at the end of three years, she left that post completely broken. You know, she, it, she just felt like a, it's a failure because she just struggled so much. She was under so much stress. And she just left that job. And she said what some of you may have said in the past. I have no idea why I was there. Didn't seem to make a scrap of difference. It just didn't feel like anything of God was involved in that. I've just failed. And she came away, took a little time to get herself together again, and then got another job, and life went on. And a year after she'd left the job, she got a call from some of her ex-colleagues in that office who rang her and said, how do we deal with our boss? And she said, well, I have no idea. It it nearly wrecked me. And they said, 
But you were the only one that looked like you were actually dealing with it. You were the only one that looked like you were actually dealing with it. She said, well, it never felt like that to me. And they said, but from where we stood, you were the one that was dealing with it. Well, we are not dealing with it. Well, how? And she talked about it. Now, it's only a small story, and it's a one-person story, and everybody's story is their own. But one person who's aware of, I'm in the furnace, and it feels like it's going to burn me up, and it's people from outside going, how are you managing? And the answer is, because there is always one who walks with you in the furnace. And you may not be aware but there is. It's all about worship. Nebuchadnezzar finishes this story by saying, um, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, they trusted in him, in God, and they defied the king's command, me, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. That's Nebuchadnezzar speaking. He's saying these men who refuse to worship the way everybody else worshiped, these men who refuse to do what everybody else is doing, these men who refuse to live and let their lives drift in the same direction as everybody else, these men who stood up and said, our lives will be different. As for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. You can do what you like, but we'll serve the Lord. It's still about worship. It's why when we come together, we come together for worship. Because actually, in our gathering, we are saying to one another, who's in charge, who makes life worthwhile, how does it all fit together? It's why worship is not just, oh, I don't like that song, or I do like that song, I don't like that music, I do like that music. It's actually because some of these words actually give me voice to say things that I would struggle to say otherwise. That's why we encourage you to sing with us. It's not about worshipping when I feel like it or do I get the goosebumps. It's actually because this is the moment where everything about your week is kind of like made solid again. Who's in charge? We believe in God, a creator and sustainer of the universe who created all of us, who recognized that we mess up so badly, but sent Jesus, who died for us on the cross and rose from the dead that we might have a relationship with the Father in order that we might live for the glory of God. There's not one of you that's outside of that. There's not one of us that's outside of that. There's not one of us that that's not relevant for. It's about worship. It's why when we take communion together, we invite those of you that want to take seriously the call to follow Jesus, come and get it. Come and receive from your brothers and sisters. Come and eat and drink. Because actually what you're saying is, this is what life's about. And everyone's different. And your challenges are different. And the furnace is different. But the promise is the same to each of us. I will be with you even to the end of the age. Last point, these exiles knew that some days you go in the furnace and you burn up. 
It's not always the case that you come out of the burnt furnace untouched. But you never lose the presence of the one who walks with you. There's lots of competing stories about the way we should live our lives. I wonder whether you'll take a stand and say, as for me, as for me, I'm not going to slag off everybody else. I'm not going to tell everybody else what they should be doing. I'm just going to say, as for me, I'm going to follow Jesus. And if you don't understand, that's fine. And if you think I'm a bit odd, that's fine. And if, you, if it means that I don't get preferment, that's okay. And if it means I lose some things, that's okay. But I'm going to follow Jesus. Because actually he's the only one that makes sense. Let's stand together. And I'm going to ask the musicians to come and help us again. And lead us. And we're going to pray. Let's stand. As they begin to lead us, let's pray together. Father God, we come and we stand in your presence and we do so as an act of commitment that we, as for us and our households, we will serve you, Lord. There's lots of other options and we know our own options. We know the temptations of our own heart. We know the way that sometimes we're pulled in lots of different directions, but we will say together, we'll follow Jesus. And Lord, in the furnace, we pray that we might be aware of the presence that is the fourth member. The friend who stands closer than a brother. The one who comes and supplies all that we're lacking. Lord, I pray for those of us this morning that might feel they're actually in the furnace. Lord, I pray that you would be there with them. Your presence enabling them to stay firm, to take a stand. Lord, may you rest your hand on those who really struggle this morning. Lord, may you fill them with power, with your strength, with all that you have. Lord Jesus, come, we pray by your Spirit. And just rest on us. And as we sing our songs of worship, Lord, as we join in, as we sing the songs that express the truth, Lord, may it not just be words, but may it be heart. And Lord, when we're tempted to sit back, Lord, prod us that we say the things that are true. Lord, we come this morning in the name of Jesus.